following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Everybody loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! My name is Matt Perez. And my name is Satchel Drakes. And this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Satchel. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. How about yourself? I'm good. Um, I've been watching a lot of TV. A lot of, um, specifically, I've been watching uh, Shark Tank. Have you heard of it? I, of course I've heard Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's been around. Starring Mark Cuban. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for people in podcast land, it's like this show where like people have different app ideas and they um, they kind of go to this, this, uh, this, what would you call it? Like a board of potential angel investors and pitch it. Yep. And there was this, yeah, I got into a really funny conversation. I was, I was watching it um, with my significant other because uh, he's super into the show and they, there was this guy who came up with this dating app called Hater, and the premise of Hater is, unlike all the others, unlike all the other dating apps where you typically list the things that you like, instead you list the things that you hate. Mm-hmm. Because conversations centered around hating things together tend to have more oil, they tend to, they tend to burn a little bit more, and they tend to be more funny, you know, inviting <laughs> I comedy. I can believe that. Um, so it, it sent us on this sort of, like, this path of reminiscing, I guess, like, just like the mechanic of like being on a dating app and finding somebody and all this other stuff. And even though that kind of road was, is like kind of over for us, um, we still ended up downloading the app and we like made like a little profile and kind of flipped through it. And it was the, the experience was fun, but also it was like super weird. Cause it's like, why are we on here? <laughs> and I, th- I, I thought there was something weird about just like, I don't know. It's sort of there's sort of being like a game aspect to to online dating. Yeah. That even after you leave it and the utility is done and it's over and there's no reason for you to be there, there was something fun about like discerning people and what's going to happen and what are your interests and all this other stuff. Yeah. Well, fun fact about it that you might not know is that Hater is also uh, has investors from the executives behind Candy Crush. So there definitely is that relationship between. A dating app. I am almost not surprised. Yeah, I cannot like this believe a that. Addicting <laughs> mobile game that's extremely popular. Like, yeah, I think they would get into something that is sort of uh, gamified, like a dating app where you swipe and whatnot. And there's like an action, that like you so said, there's wild. mechanics. Uh, and yeah, like that's that that relationship that between games and dating. I kind of we like. I'm interested in in. Uh, breaking that down and seeing like what there is what similarities are there between those two uh so you know decided to talk to an expert on dating and the history of it and its relationships with games uh, it's very appropriate with valentine's day coming up soon as well that's right we have an interview with moira weigel she's a historian on dating and has also done significant research on the gamification of dating apps let's get into it 
But first, a quick break. Thank you to Veridesk and Rocket Mortgage for their support of our show, Overworld. More about those companies later in the show. We're back with Moira Weigel, Harvard scholar and author of the 2016 book, Labor of Love, which is about the invention of dating. Moira, thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, would you mind kind of unpacking the kind of research you've been involved with, the kind of areas of of dating that have sort of been on, on the front of your mind lately? Um, that'll sort of help just because dating is such a such a huge thing. Yeah, totally. So my book, it, in general, I write about and study sort of what I call the social life of technology or the ways that new technologies like reconfigure society and culture. And my book is, it's a mix of sort of history that you, it's a mix of history and using history to illuminate the present. So sort of how did dating come to be the way it is? How did like dating app culture or, you know, in a slightly earlier era, dating website culture come out of what came before it? And I think that dating, you know, dating is something that we don't or casually probably don't think of as having a history. Like we sort of think, oh, there's courtship and there's like the way you're supposed to be. And it was always that way since cavemen, except now we have iPhones. I'm like, oh, shoot, romance is over. Um, But of course, I feel like I was, you know, I was like a single woman in graduate school getting all these hysterical emails from my mother to this effect. Like every, you know, it's like the New York Times would run an article that's like the death of dating and mom would like forward it. (laughs) It's like, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So I think also these stories, I mean, I don't know how useful this is for this podcast, but I'm really interested in like crisis stories too, where it's like, I think that often what's interesting once you start to look into the history of dating, which goes back only about 100 years, you know, before that, you have other ways that people meet that each other. That was crazy to find out when I read that tidbit. I was like, oh, <laughs> my goodness. Like, I hadn't even – you just look at it as like, okay, there's a menu of different ways that you can go about this, and dating is one of them, and it's a very American way. I didn't know how young it was. Yeah, and it's funny because I also, you know, when I was a panicked grad student getting, like, Atlantic articles forwarded to me by my mom, I also didn't hadn't really thought about that. But, of course, like, cave people didn't have bars or restaurants to go to, and, like, 19th century women didn't go outside the house by themselves unless they were <laughs> prostitutes. So it's like these are... Um, these are like relatively new cultural norms. So I can't remember why I started saying all that. But my approach is sort of using history to illuminate the present, show the way I think often this kind of conversation that's like the kids are doing it wrong. At no point have the young people ever been doing it right, like according to the authorities. But that kind of <laughs> conversation is often very conservative. Like it's very much yes, like men yes. should be this way and like women should be this way. And God forbid if a man and a man and a woman and a woman might ever want to have anything to do with each other romantically. But anyway, there's like this, there's something very conservative about it. So I wanted to kind of like push back at that discourse that's like everything was great until the phone, the iPhone, and now romance is over. So it's like hopefully a fun, playful, like deep history of all these different ideas we have about dating. So whenever this topic does come up, there often tends to be a ham-fisted kind of response in either direction, whether, like, dating apps are 100%, like, making this space, like, better and more vibrant, or Mm -hmm. more commonly, um, it was pure, like, when it was older, you kind of get that worldview 
It's very important to remind boomer parents that they had more sex in college than millennials did. Like, they were more promiscuous <laughs> than, than their children. <laughs> Statistically speaking, there are good studies on this, so we always want to shake that back at them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally hear you. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know, where do you sort of land on, on this spectrum of, and it doesn't even have to be as, like, it doesn't have to be, like, as sort of one-dimensional as, like, it's great, it's terrible, but, like, where do you land on this spectrum of what apps are doing? Like, how do you speak to sort of the nuance of how apps, like, dating apps are changing the way that we look at finding romance? Yeah, I think I totally hear you where I feel like you get these really polarized reactions, usually, where it's, like, most of the time, people are like, it's terrible. I hate it. It's so much work. I'm exhausted of it. Um, and then some people really love it and think, you know, it's great. And I think there is, I think often because the dominant tone of the conversation is so negative, I find myself pushing back in the sort of techno-utopian direction, saying like, <laughs> again, try being like, everyone loves to romanticize the 1950s. It's like, try being interracial, try being queer, try being like, a girl who got pregnant and didn't want to drop out of high school and have a kid and get married right away. Like, all sorts of things were garbage about that era. Um, and so I feel like I often find myself pointing to all the ways that apps have been really liberatory for people. But I think that at yeah. the end of the day, there's this line by a philosopher of technology that I like a lot, where he says, technology is neither good nor bad, neither is it neutral, which I think about that all the time. I think that it's like, at the end of the day, technologies are tools. And people use them in different ways. And how they get used also depend on, like, the context they're dropped into. So, um, you know, I think that since we live in a certain kind of late capitalist, basically sexist society, there are some things that can be quite crummy about being a woman on Tinder. Um, but there are also good things about it. So I think it's hard to come down one way or another. I think it's really important to talk about how we use these technologies or tools rather than saying, you know, the tools themselves are good or bad. In this kind of new tech innovation that in in very many way in, in, in many ways is uh, is good and does create a new venue for people to meet mm -hmm. um, how what are some of the kind of gamified aspects of it um, good and bad? Well, I feel like it's, I'd be curious to hear, I have to confess, I'm no longer dating, or I'm not presently dating at the moment, I'm partnered, but I'd be curious to hear from you all if you are, because I'm like, I feel like a lot of these apps are just 100% games, I'm like, Tinder is mostly a video game about people who would like, consider having sex with you, that you're like, oh, ding, 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 like my endorphins, um, I have a match, um, I interviewed one guy for my book who'd been, who used Tinder for like 90 minutes a day for years, and he had been on like three dates in person ever, um, oh but he really God. enjoyed it, and he got something positive out of it, so I think that there's something very gamified about all the apps, I don't think it starts with the apps, however, like, I don't know, one really interesting thing about this history of dating that I look at in my book is... There's this real shift when young people start doing what they call dating, you know, sort of going out together instead of meeting in family homes or meeting through a priest or a rabbi or in these like supervised settings where people met before dating. And I think that in the older scenario, like in the Jane Austen situation where you're like sitting in your parlor and a guy comes over and your mom is like, what do you, you know, how many pounds a year will he inherit? Um, that it's like <laughs> in that situation everyone involved recognizes that courtship is serious. It's really serious and everyone involved should take it seriously. And there are kind of these rules and norms 
that everyone is following. And as soon as you start having a lot of young people moving to cities in the 1880s, 1890s, women starting to work outside the home, young people sort of mixing in this freer way, which is what dating comes from, um, you start to see this sort of gamified aspect where it's more like play, you know, where it's not yeah. so much this serious thing supervised by parents. And I always joke, I'm like, all our metaphors are from either work or sports, right? So it's like, you're damaged goods, hopefully not anymore, that's rude. It's like, but you're like on the market or off the market, or you're trying to seal the deal, or you're friends with benefits, or, you know, you're, you want security, <laughs> you're settling, you're investing in a relationship. There are all these economic ways we talk about it, but then there are all the oh game ways, too. Goodness. And I feel like it's very gendered in our culture. I feel like for straight people, a lot of the economic ways we tend to think of more for women. And the, like we think for women it's work and for men it's play. Um, like I feel like a female baller oh, is kind of joking. Interesting. I totally see that, though, of like uh, in past with dating. Like it is like I think people view it as sort of a game. And uh, I guess I do think part of that is like just um, – I think maybe with Tinder, there's like a, in being a game, there's more motivation, like for like something like Super Mario, like you have to get to the end of the level. That's your goal. And then like, if you recontextualize dating as a game, there's an, a goal at the end at, that you, that like, and that's why people maybe play it in that sort of competitive way. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I think that that makes sense. I also think, I mean, it's like, not to be too cynical, and maybe this makes me sound like a techno-dystopian, when you start talking about getting to the end with Tinder, I just think of, like, getting to the end of the deck or whatever. And I think that there is a way in which apps really train us to process people. Like, the end we're trying to get through is the end of, like, making a lot more data spreads for IAC, which owns Tinder. You know, I mean, these are little games um, <laughs> that we're used that are training us to play them to, like, any, to produce value for the people who own the platform. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like it's funny because it's this game where supposedly what we're competing over is like the great one night stand or true love or whatever it is, depending on the app. But in a way, of course, these platforms are designed to get us to play them to generate engagement and data. And I think they have like a machine learning feature on Tinder now too. There's like a new super like ML feature, which I was just reading about. I don't know if you guys saw that. Oh man, I haven't, but I've been working in machine. So I work in tech. I've been working with machine learning, and I am not uh -huh. surprised that that is a thing. <laughs> yeah, we always joke my partners in tech, and we're always like, "Oh yeah, if you can add ML or like the blockchain to your startup, your value right, right, up, like, yes, your value goes up. Yes, please." <laughs> so. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes Overworld podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. 
maybe it was uh, just conspiracy theories before, but I'm sure it's like accurate where, you know, if you open up Tinder for the day and like uh, your first few swipes will probably be more successful than your later ones. And maybe mm-hmm. it, it does that. So you stick with the app and keep going. And I think there definitely is like an addicting quality to like swipe left and right constantly. And uh, yeah, it's just funny where um, I know like when I, like quote unquote play Tinder like it's a ma- if I get like a match I'm like oh that's cool I'm done for the day like, <laughs> it feels good I'm like all right oh my goodness. time to move on <laughs> I've never heard that play, before that's right? amazing you, literally you play it yeah and you get oh. that like that like little buzz kind of thing that like hit of dopamine that you would like playing a video game and I'm like cool that's true let me go read a book or something all right. <laughs> It's really so funny true. though because I feel like this is so true. But I'm it's I'm always I'm interested in like antecedents or things that came historically earlier, and I feel like you see versions of this well before computing. Like I'm just remembering this study I came across from the 1930s by this sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Or sorry, he was at Penn State actually. But this guy named Willard Waller publishes this very sober book about how college kids date in the 1930s called Rating and Dating, the Rating and Dating Complex. And he's sort of talking about how all these kids, instead of like soberly courting the way they would have back in his day, sort of like assign values to each other and go out to these dances as if it were a competition or play tricks, like pretend not to be in the dorm when someone calls them on the phone so they seem more in demand. And he's he's saying like that it feels really perverse and sad to him, that it feels like it's become a game. And also that it introduces this element of ambiguity about what dating's even for. Like, I always think of this, I think it's so funny, this line that he was writing in the 1920s, 1930s, and he says, he's like, you know, a kiss used to mean something, a walk in the park used to mean something, and now these things may mean nothing at all, because they're just part of this game. So I feel like it's, and what's interesting is how deep in the DNA of dating as a practice it goes. But like, for sure, it's like Tinder is a video game, first and foremost. I think another aspect of it is, uh, I guess, like, uh, it, this goes with, like, social media, but I also think mm-hmm. it goes with, like, online gaming is, like, creating a persona. And uh, totally. so, like, with Tinder and Bumble, like, in essence, you you know, it is, still like, sort of like creating a persona. You're supposed to be honest, but I'm sure a lot of people, you know, you curate, you know, the content you put out there, you know. Can you talk a little bit about that? Totally. It's funny because there's a whole chapter of my book that's called Likes, like about the idea of why, you know, how the idea of what you like is so important in dating. And it's like you think about if someone liked like really terrible music, you might feel like you couldn't date them or like maybe it's books. But, you know, that like how kind of strange this idea is that we think we'll like people that like the things we like or whatever. And, you know, of course, I guess not with Tinder or Grindr, but with um Okay, Cupid, or with like Match.com historically, putting in things that you like is like a really big part of creating your persona. I think that it's a fascinating thing. I, this is sorry, this is kind of a tangent, but this word personality and the idea that having a personality is really important for dating um, is comes up in the 1920s in a big way, and it's so like. This stuff is so fascinating to me. Anyway, I read like hundreds and hundreds of books and articles of advice literature uh, while I was researching my book. And one thing that was really striking is like before the free market dating revolution, if we want to call it that, you know, back in the dude comes to your house and calls on you with your mom and aunts there way, 
all of the advice literature talks about how you should be sincere, you should be honest, you should be straightforward. The focus is on character and this idea that you have character and you want to show it to a prospective partner sort of as openly and straightforwardly, you know, modestly, but not with any like deviousness involved. And then as soon as you get young people going out and meeting on their own and particularly women going out into cities by themselves or without family, immediately the advice literature becomes all about constructing this personality <laughs> that's like not necessarily the same thing as your character. Uh, quite a lot of it is about never admitting what you want. You know, I always laugh. Speaking of gamification, I'm like, okay, the two most successful dating franchises for straight people in history are the game and the rules. Um, but the rules... <laughs> Um, and it's really wild, but anyway, the rules for, I don't know if you've ever encountered the rules, they were very popular in the 1990s, and actually some, like, I kind of make fun of them in my book, and some army of, like, rules devotees, like, trolled me on Twitter when I was on book tour, but anyway, the rules is basically just, like, a whole book of dozens of things you're not supposed to do. It's yeah. like, oh, do you want to call him? Don't call him. Like, do you want to sleep with him? Don't sleep with him. Like, oh, you slept with him? You want to talk to him about it? Don't. Like, it's like anything you want to do, like, don't do it. <laughs> um, but I think that, anyway, to get back to personality, like, at the moment of the invention of dating, you see this real shift towards the idea that to make ourselves desirable on a dating market, we can't just show ourselves as we are. We have to construct this personality and ideally a personality that's kind of cool, that like doesn't care too much about what other people think, that doesn't want the other person as much as they want you, hopefully. And it's funny, before the 1920s, this word personality is really only used in psychiatric literature to talk about abnormal personality or people who have personality disorders. Um, but this idea wow. that personality is like, or a persona is something you need to cultivate really comes into the mainstream with the rise of dating, and it's totally true on online today. I mean, people spend so much time, not just in dating, I mean, with our social media presences in general, but we spend so much time cultivating, you know, the image that we want to cultivate in these sort of semi-public spaces. And it's fast, sorry, I can go on and on about it, because it's like there's so many elements of class and background that get telegraphed, sometimes in quite subtle ways. Like there was a study a couple of years ago at UT Austin about how consistently people pick people of the same education and economic background even on tinder um so like even on something that's ostensibly just visually based uh we sort one another very effectively so anyway i think that yeah it's like constructing a persona has always been a huge part of dating and the mobile phone era just takes it to like the next next level in terms of how constantly we're doing it what i'm kind of curious to know about specifically with tinder i remember so i remember trying super likes <laughs> mm -hmm. and for me like i'm 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 100 i i easily identify as an empiricist for anything that somebody tells me my answer is show me the data and mm -hmm. i knew that like through data alone like super likes yield a two times response rate right like from right somebody, it's like somebody is more likely to swipe swipe back and i fell for it totally like <laughs> used it. When, I, when i was when i was on the apps yeah, i totally used it didn't apply common sense that essentially says, you know, under deeper inspection, if I wasn't going to swipe right normally on somebody, a cute animation and a blue star isn't going to make me change my stance. <laughs> but but this sort of like carrot on the end of the stick reminds me a lot about video games where we sort of have these similar 
instances of microtransactions and like mm-hmm. DLC and cosmetic upgrades that will slowly kind of pull like a dollar, two dollars out of our pocket every once in a while if we're feeling defeated by the game, if we're feeling like maybe we're we're really, really close or if we feel like, oh, this person's profile is perfect. Like if I just use this, like this special ammunition, like this will be the thing. Um <laughs> Uh, military totally that's so funny i'm I'm just thinking of mario jumping up to get stars or whatever like you're like doinking your head on the little thing that the mushroom comes out of i'm like not actually a video gamer (laughs) yeah i'm curious to know in in your sort of like research like what are other instances of that you've seen like this marriage of microtransactions to getting people involved Mm mm-hmm it's a fabulous question i mean i feel like listening to you talk about it it just again, makes me think about how our relationship with the apps is very much like this relationship that's designed to get us to do all this work for Barry Diller or whatever. <laughs> like, to do all this work for IEC, and it's totally addictive. And it's like, maybe if we thought of Tinder as just like a little, like, Tamagotchi or whatever, like a little animal that kept us company um, by making us have dopamine flashes or whatever, that would be fine. Um, I think... I have to think about that a little bit because I think that it's like a big thing about what I call the invention of dating is that courtship moves from family spaces and private spaces into like commercial spaces. Um, And part of what that means, and I mean, if you want to be like draw sort of analogy about it, it's like in the Jane Austen novel, mom and dad own the platform, right? Like the people who the platform is the living room and that's where you're going to meet dudes. And they, the people who own the platform, their incentives are aligned with the users of the platform. Like, everyone involved wants you to get married to Mr. Darcy so that, like, their inheritance can pass down or whatever. And when you think about dating, like, the platforms of dating in the early 20th century, it's like the dance hall and the boardwalk and the bar, the movie theater. It's like the owner of the platform, their incentives are no longer aligned with the users of the platform. And, indeed, their incentives are the opposite. Like, I always think Christian Rudder, who started OkCupid, has this line in his book, Dataclism, where he's like, we have a weird kind of service business where if we do our job well, the user like never comes back (laughs) or the customer never comes back. Um, And so there's this funny tension like in all dating, I feel, where the owners of the platform and the users of the platform's incentives are different Um, and indeed sometimes opposed. Like a bar owner doesn't want you to get married. The bar owner wants everyone to keep coming back to the bar on dates. Uh, So I feel like... (laughs) Because of that, it's like you get these little like accoutrements or like extra added things. Like, um, I don't know, I think about dance cards. It's school dances in the 1920s and 1930s. There's all this fuss about dance cards and trying to get your dance card filled and it being kind of a competition. And it's like, and by the way, the idea that what people who are dating should be looking for is like one boyfriend or girlfriend really that you should have like a serious boyfriend and girlfriend who you're not going to get married to immediately only really starts after world war ii like that was a very scandalizing idea where it first appeared when it first appeared in the 1940s but um but anyway i feel like so you have these little things like a dance card or like in my book i talk about the history of tgi fridays which is so crazy tgi fridays was like a sexy bar in the 1960s which was news to me uh, when i started learning about it and the founder based it on gay bars like, he was a business school grad, this guy named Alan Stallman, and he, it was the 60s, and he saw all these, like, great, cool gay bars in the West Village and was like, we need that for straight people. I'm going to make Blender. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he was like, so I, 
but there were like all these things about the design of TGI Fridays and how it was supposed to have kind of like a sexy airport vibe because airports were sexy in the 1960s. So it's like all these accoutrements that make you want to go out to TGI Fridays. Interesting. Like that they have these trees and lamps or whatever, but that aren't directly about the quality of the dating interaction. And to me, it's like just off the top of my head, I feel like that star on the super like is like uh, a bit like, you know, the cool trees in the TGI Fridays in the 1960s. Like it's like some extra that the platform adds to make you addicted to the platform. Um, it doesn't have a ton to do with the quality that's, of the match. That's totally fair. <laughs> I hope the gay community cannot, doesn't, I, I just hope we don't claim those terrible collages of buttons that people would wear on their suspenders. <laughs> <laughs> No, all the bad things are Blender's fault. It's not. Yeah. It's, not the um, it's so oh funny, the God. platform thing. This is kind of a tangent, but it's like one of my favorite things. Um, I came, I did some research on like swinging and non-monogamy and how it's related mm. to apps and how um, kinds of new platforms and networking technologies facilitate it. And I came across like more than one article or letter or kind of a tech account from the 1960s of swingers yeah. uh, talking about the interstate highway system. And they were like, oh, gosh, like when President Eisenhower built the interstate highway system, he made our lifestyle possible. And like, isn't it great? And before there were highways that you could use to get from place to place so quickly, it was a real pain in the ass to try to swing as a married couple. You had to like put your picture in a magazine and find a picture you liked and write back and forth and then like drive for like five hours to get to the next state. But now the highways make it so much faster to get to the next state and it makes swinging much more possible. (laughs) And it was like, God, I don't think Eisenhower had this in mind when he built the highway. <laughs> but uh, you never know how people use a network. But uh, yeah, anyway, oh, I think that goodness. it's like no, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. <laughs> so that 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 is really cool to see the 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 shift throughout history, and I think it's really cool that you've kind of you kind of have this vested interest in uh, touching on when changes started happening over a relatively short period of time. Thanks. Yeah. I hope, I mean, I think it's like, for me, I hope that historical context makes people feel like they have more options or feel sort of freer and more self-forgiving. Because I feel like often, like I was actually raised very Catholic, the many complexes, which could be the subject of many other podcasts, but I will save it for a shrink. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's um, you know, I think that I growing up received like a very, and I love my family, whatever, it's fine. Everyone's trying their best. But it's like, I feel like I received a very strong set of rules, like norms, ideas about what courtship is supposed to be and what an intimate life is supposed to look like. And I find it, and I think also straight women in particular are very conditioned to think that sort of anything that goes wrong with dating is their fault or that it's like, I don't know, to feel this kind of panic that, I mean, actually I think men and women and people of all genders feel this, but it's like this fear that you won't be loved you know, that if you're not the right way and don't do things the right way, you won't be loved. And I think every human pretty much wants to be loved in some fashion. And I think that I found the history really liberating because you just realize it's so much more diverse and open and also subject to change over time um, than than you might be led to believe if you have a childhood like I did. Um, So I hope that in some way all this, like, wacky archival research into into swingers magazines or like queer bars of the 1930s or whatever it is um does 
gives something that's like liberating feeling. At least that's how it felt for me doing the research. Um, after my mom sent me all those Atlantic magazine articles. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, more. This is really awesome uh, and super interesting. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is super fun. Up next, Paul Tassi and Eric Kane discuss Microsoft's upcoming exclusive Sea of Thieves, as well as the news that Xbox Games Pass will now include Xbox One exclusives. But first, a quick break. This year, the office cubicle turns 50 years old. It hails from an age when work was done on typewriters and smoking at your desk was the norm. Today, employees are expecting more from their workspace. They want flexible and active spaces where they can collaborate and feel energized. Veradesk Active Workspace Solutions make it easy to encourage more movement to any workday. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health, boost energy, and increase productivity. Veradesk has a variety of desk solutions that replace traditional office setups, require little to no assembly, and are ready to use in minutes. Plus, Veradesk products are made from commercial-grade materials meant to last a lifetime. They're easy to move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. You can try Veradesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns if you're not satisfied. See it for yourself at veradesk.com. That's V-A-R-I desk.com. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Everybody loves honey-glazed carrots, a great side dish for your springtime celebration, and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Hi, I'm Eric Kane. And I'm Paul Tassi. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about Microsoft and Xbox. And I guess the context of that is the Xbox One X has been out for a few months now, uh, so that's we've both been playing that. And Microsoft just announced that their Xbox Game Pass, which is their kind of subscription service um, for $10 a month, is going to be featuring all of their exclusives on day one of launch uh, as part of the, the $10 package. And then finally, uh, when we're recording this, the Sea of Thieves beta has just started, uh, which is may end up being the biggest Microsoft exclusive of the year, depending on what else they come out with. So there's, there's a little bit to talk about there. So uh, what, what do you make of... Microsoft in this given moment, Eric? Well, it's interesting. Um, the Xbox One X is a really great console, as far as I can tell. I've had a few issues just in general with Xbox lately with some technical issues, but those seem pretty easy to work out. Um, sea of Thieves is a weird exclusive for Microsoft, I feel like. It's like this cartoony uh, co-op pirate game, uh, which, you know, when we think of Xbox exclusives, we think you know, Gears of War, Halo, you know, shooters with uh, aliens and buzz saws and things like that. So it's kind of a, it's, <laughs> you know, like Gears of War with the yeah, buzz saw yeah. gun oh, or whatever you call yeah, that. I yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a big Gears player, to be honest. Um, yeah, me neither at this point. Like when Gears first came out, I didn't have an Xbox and I really, really, really wanted an Xbox because it looked so good. Um, but then by the time I got around to it, it just... I don't know. I never really got into the series all that much. Um, although I did like the last Gears of War like, on the Xbox One. That was a pretty good game. Um, so anyways, yeah, I, Sea of Thieves, I've I've sort of dipped my toes into the, the beta this morning just playing solo. And, and I've, I have not formed any solid opinions of it yet. But it is kind of a, a unique game and it's, it's sort of surprising for Microsoft. I don't know. Uh, 
and, and on, uh, as far as the Xbox Games Pass thing, I think that's a brilliant move. Uh, especially because Microsoft doesn't have a lot of exclusives, so they're not really giving away that much. Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. And, I, I mean, the obvious caveat is that they don't have a ton of, of exclusives to kind of take advantage of this to make it super worthwhile. But if this is representative of some kind of larger move in the industry where maybe that's how games are eventually distributed, like with a kind of very cheap slash free upfront kind of subscription cost for either a publisher or whole console or whatever, and then everyone makes their money off kind of DLC or microtransactions or, you know, stuff like that. So to kind of get people over the initial $60 hurdle, because games right now, people just can't afford to just keep buying chunky $60 games. But in contrast, the problem is that games have also stayed $60 for a very long time, and they should probably be more like $80 or $100. So... I do kind of wonder if this could be the first step in kind of a, a broader shakeup of the entire kind of industry, if this could be a more widely adopted thing and everything shifts towards ongoing revenue or subscriptions as opposed to these kind of large up, upfront costs for things. It's The risk here, of course, is kind of what we're seeing also in TV streaming, which is that everyone's got their subscription service and it becomes just unaffordable to to go with, you know, all of these different subscription services. Like it's one thing to buy, you know, maybe you're a gamer and you buy four games a year or something. Um, but, you know, if you're subscribed to Microsoft Game Pass and also Xbox Live, and then you're also, you know, maybe EA, you know, they already have their own thing, their own subscription service. So maybe you're subscribed to that. And then let's say Activision comes out with their own subscription. And pretty soon you've got, you know, I mean, how many subscriptions can people really belong to? Right. Like, like, and all of this is ultimately in service of making them more money overall, which means consumers, at least some consumers, may end up paying more than they would if they were just kind of buying piecemeal. Um, that said, that hasn't really stopped the trend in the TV industry. Like, people aren't, you know, just flat out buying DVDs or something anymore still in, in the movie or TV industry. Like, you know, big box sets, they've all moved right. over to streaming, which. I would say overall is, st- is still probably a better value than buying a bunch of box sets and having a cable cons- subscription and stuff like that. So if if we could see that being similarly valuable in gaming, I can see it catching on. And I think so far people have liked kind of the EA Pass and the Game Pass mm-hmm. so far. And if they just keep adding more and more stuff to it, I think it'll be kind of increasingly attractive as we go. Yeah, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how it all shapes up. I, I do think it definitely represents a shift because it's sort of in between that free to play and then um, premium, you know, sixty dollar game. Uh, because you know you're not you know, let's you know if you if you're paying ten dollars a month for the the Microsoft Games Pass, you know you get Sea of Thieves for free, but it's not a free to play game. I don't know. Do you know what their monetization? post-launch is going to be with that game? Are they doing loot boxes or... I haven't heard if they're doing loot boxes. You would think with the, with the game that's all about treasure chests, they might <laughs> slip some yeah. loot boxes in there. I would imagine it would be your usual kind of cosmetics, like, oh, here, get this pirate hat or whatever. Um, it, it, I know it's a $60 upfront title. I, I just don't know if they're going to do kind of set DLCs or microtransactions or both. Yeah. Uh, if I were them, I might hold off on <laughs> doing much of that <laughs> until they can establish a base to avoid all the recent controversies we've <laughs> come right. across, uh, especially as a new IP where you're really just kind of trying to get people to, to try it out first and then kind of monetization 
post-launch and maybe come later and not be directly baked into it. But we've yeah. seen that a lot recently. Yeah, um, I think that's smart. I, I'm curious to see how Sea of Thieves does. At the time of this writing, I can't get into the beta because I keep getting errors. But I've watched people stream it and, you know, we've kind of been aware of it for a while. And I, I'm curious because this seems like it could end up being kind of the big Microsoft game of the year because... I don't think there's any universe in which Crackdown 3 isn't going to be terrible. (laughs) And I doubt we're going to see a new Halo or Gears or something crazy or Fable 4 by by fall. So this kind of might be it. Well, Um, there's um, there's State of Decay 2. Yeah, there's State Um, of Decay 2. And uh, there's a couple others. And there's probably like one or two that I'm missing. But I I don't know if that'll be as huge either. But yeah. I don't know. To me, this reminds like this seems to be a really kind of fun game for content creators to stream and stream with each other because it's kind mm-hmm. of almost mandatory <laughs> to kind of play with a crew. Um, you, you were saying earlier, like you have a pirate ship and you have to kind of run around all the different roles, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So I've only played by myself so far, and I've only kind of I've done two things in the game. Um, one is I just I didn't realize I had to go get a like a, a treasure map or kind of like a quest. Uh, so I just took the boat out and you know, I had to figure out how to even get it going, like raise the anchor, raise the sail or lower the sails and all that. And then I was like, Oh, I need to go back and get a voyage, like something to actually do instead of just sailing around. But in my attempt to, uh, dock the ship, I, <laughs> I sunk it instead because it was very difficult to, to steer, <laughs> to, to look, cause you, as you, you have to have the sails down to move and you can raise them or lower them to different degrees. Yeah. But to, to raise and lower, you have to run over the ropes and, um, then you can no longer be at the steering wheel. And then of course, when you're actually at the dock, you're going to have to lower the anchor. So you have to do like four different tasks at once and playing solo is very difficult. So I'm wondering I, I how much ship. fun that'll be in kind of the longer term. Because, like, on the surface, this kind of reminds me of, at least in terms of its appeal, like a PUBG or maybe a Minecraft, where it's something that content creators can stream and it, it looks fun when they're playing it. And that could, in turn, get people to want to, to play it just because of you can get in these kind of wacky situations and do a lot of creative stuff with it. Um, but the contrast is that both PUBG and Minecraft can easily be played solo. Right. And if you don't have a crew to kind of run around with, if there isn't really that much opportunity for solo play, I don't know how big a game based entirely essentially around co-op play can, can get. It kind of reminds me of maybe like Star Trek bridge crew where, you know, people have a role and like you, you almost have to be playing as a team to, you know, get things done. So I, I am curious to see, even if it does work well as a team, like, do people really always want to be playing games as teams? And I, I think you kind of need some more flexibility there to, yeah. to be able to play solo. So I, I guess we'll see how that shakes out. But that's kind of one warning flag for me that's going up. You know, I could see a popular streamer enlisting his viewers who are also players to be his crew. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and then have, you know, this popular streamer uh with his fans kind of manning the ship and the cannons and going off on and that i could see actually being really uh really popular uh for for audiences and for gamers because you know it it becomes sort of interactive i mean we'll see if that happens but i mean but honestly like if you're if you're sailing your ship and you've got you've got to maneuver it and you've got to shoot cannons it's not like uh it's not like assassin's creed black flag where you can do all of that yourself. So it really is definitely something that's going to, it's, it's going to be unique, I think in the industry and it, it'll either sink or swim, I guess, you know? Yeah. Uh, 
the the other the only other thing I've done in the game so far is in the starting tavern as I went and I I drank a couple uh, tankards of grog, and boy the 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 drunk effect in this game is very serious. Is this a kid's I, game? <laughs> I, I, two tankards in and the the screen was moving around like I was seasick. And I was I couldn't get through the door, and then my character threw up several times. I'm mildly surprised so. that's in the game, to be honest. <laughs> so I thought this was kind of more aimed at, at kids. I mean, maybe maybe it's teen. I don't remember what it's rated. It's yeah, got to be teen right. if you're drinking. Yeah, um, and it's free too. It's an open bar, so okay. you can just get as much grog as you want. It doesn't even cost you anything. <laughs> mommy, mommy, I want to be like the pirates. <laughs> Do we have any grog? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I I hope it does well. It's just. Some things kind of concern me about it, and it, it seems tough for me to think that it's going to be some huge breakout hit. Like, maybe it'll be a very good game and find kind of a core audience, but I, I would wonder if it, if it has the potential to be truly kind of massive. But I, I guess it's probably too early to say that for sure either way. Yeah, it's tricky for me because I'm I'm also just very much a solo player, so I recognize that as one of my really massive biases in terms of video games. Like, even like something like Destiny... I just generally like to play solo. So I know I do the strikes and stuff, but I don't really have like a core team of friends that I get together with. I mean, you know, I'll, I do play games with friends sometimes, but it's, it's just, I am more of a solo player. Even even a game like destiny that is mostly based around team play, you can still play easily 70, 80% of that game solo without significant problems like either through matchmaking or whatever and like maybe i i don't know if this game has a kind of a robust matchmaking system or not um maybe it does but it i don't know it, it if it's not geared enough for solo players i think it's it's going to lose a chunk of people from that yeah well at the starting screen you can choose to join a large crew on a large ship a, me- a medium crew on a medium ship or i guess a small crew on a small a medium ship or play solo on a small ship Okay. And that they they mention that it gets increasingly difficult the smaller the group. So, playing by yourself is the hardest, and then the small crew is second. <laughs> that seems you know. slightly backwards, but okay. <laughs> yeah, it's well. I mean, I guess it's just mechanically it's harder. It's yeah. just harder to run a ship. To and I, I guess can't that's really realistic. Think of another game like that where it's just gets significantly hard. I mean, granted, you couldn't like only like a couple people on Earth can solo a Destiny raid or something, but <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't know. That's it's not about like controlling all the different pieces of something necessarily. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's definitely a unique game. I'm I'm definitely uh, curious to see what it's like. Hopefully, uh, we can all get together later today and, and play yeah, it. Yeah, whatever starts uh, working. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I imagine it will, but yeah, um, I'm, it, yeah. It, I'm pretty. I, I I've been curious to see what kind of Microsoft has been doing generally lately because I've really been enjoying my Xbox One X and. It's not, you know, super significantly different than the PS4 Pro, but I will say that if a multi-platform game is coming out for both systems, I almost have no reason to pick it up for PS4 Pro now because I know it will be at least marginally improved on the Xbox One X. So that alone has kind of auto-shifted me towards being, you know, kind of a hardcore Xbox person once again for for almost all titles short of exclusives. And Well, there's also <laughs> there's also um exclusive content even even outside of exclusive games like sony still has deals with you know call of duty where the all the dlc comes out a month ahead of time um with destiny 2 where you get special 
you know, different uh, strikes and stuff like that for PlayStation. So that's still an edge that Sony has. Um, Sony annoying but, me into playing on their system. Right, exactly. <laughs> is, uh, but yeah, I mean, the Xbox One is, it, you know, I think the only thing that I still prefer with, with Sony in general is just the user interface. I, I still just don't really care for the Xbox user interface. I agree. Um, They've been through so many iterations of it, and it's just still not amazing. Why is it so hard to get this right? It's just all they need is something clean and easy to navigate, and yet it's just clunky, and I'm like, where do I even find half the stuff I need to find? Yeah, like I went – I was downloading Sea of Thieves, and I scrolled down. I'm like, oh, where's the Sea of Thieves icon? And then I scroll down, and it's – there's like a giant Sea of Thieves icon. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I click on it. But that's that's the button to add Sea of Thieves to your home screen. That's not the button <laughs> to start Sea of Thieves. I'm like, oh, God. So then I had to delete it from my home screen and then go into my game. And, like, it just – it never seems to fully get it right. And yeah. I guess it's not – it's gotten to the point where it's not so bad. Like, back when it was doing, like, the Windows 8 tiles when it first launched, where it's still using kind of DNA of that. But it's not so bad where I'm, like, avoiding the system because of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just funny because both the Switch and the Sony PlayStation 4 are uh, – they use a similar layout, which is just here's a strip of your games and apps, you know? Like you can get to whatever you need very easily. It's all very obvious. Uh, I just – I don't know why the Xbox just feels – there's also a lot of like wasted space I feel like. I don't know. It's strange. But I love – you know, on the the flip side, I love the exterior design of the Xbox One X and the Xbox One S. Both are good-looking consoles with easy-to-access ports and a very obvious power button, whereas the PlayStation 4 is the most ridiculously designed system I've ever used. You you can't reach the HDMI ports in the back very easily because it's angled backwards, and you can't see the power button or the eject button on the front. And, and you have to like search around for them, and it's just it's, it's I hate the PlayStation 4's design. Whereas I really, really, really like just the look and accessibility of the Xbox. The yeah, new I, Xbox. I didn't system. like the original Xbox One. It was just oh, too massive. Hideous. But the, uh, the 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 ones since have been really good, and I, I've liked those a lot. Yeah, I really think they've done a good job with that. I just think X, in general, Microsoft has. I feel like they're putting a little more effort into the the details with with a lot of things with with their new systems and. And I feel like Sony's kind of riding on their success a little bit. I mean, maybe not so much with the games because there's still a lot more PlayStation exclusives coming up. I mean, just so many more than than Microsoft. Yeah, and and that's the kind of the final missing piece of the puzzle where – so it does seem like Microsoft may have finally figured this out after like four or five years that they really need to (laughs) buckle down and focus on exclusives because there's, you know, these rumors that are almost certainly true that – they're going to make Fable 4 as like a big open world single player RPG. And before this, they've kind of been focused mainly on just their established series, a lot of which are kind of heavily multiplayer focused, like Halo and Gears, or trying really random things like Fable Legends, which just, you know, totally tanks because they're like, oh, let's make Fable a hero MOBA evolve type game, like that when it's yeah. not. <laughs> at all what it should be or like here's a connect on the rails fable game you know <laughs> and yeah. but the problem is is it's gonna take a long time to get there so like if fables in development now when are we gonna see it three years from now maybe yeah i would say yeah. and in the interim it's it's stuff like sea of thieves which again is it could be cool but it's not you know god of war 4 coming out in a couple of months or the last of us 2 coming out this fall theoretically or you know stuff like that and sony mm-hmm. just 
Sony and Nintendo just keep the hits coming and at a pace that Microsoft is just nowhere near close. And even Microsoft's oh, yeah. best entries are, are like, oh, well, here's Halo 6. Like, <laughs> That's the only Halo that's come out on uh, Xbox One. Or, because, yeah, well, or Halo, Halo 5. 5. Halo yeah, 5 is Halo the only 6 one. will be coming. But it's like, right. you know, Gears, yeah. Gears 4 came out, and that was like... That was that wasn't even in people's like top ten of the year list. Like that just barely made an impact among kind of the general gaming public, and that's like their second most valuable game, brand right? these days. Yeah. So yeah, they need more Halo content for sure. It's just you can't have. I mean, what we're on year? Are we in year five of the Xbox One now? I was fourteen. Was, I think we're year four. No, no, I think it came out in twenty thirteen. Was it? Well, technically, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess um, we just oh no no, yeah yeah no it was 2013 it was it was late 2013 so we're in the fifth year okay and one only one Halo game if you don't count Halo Wars two I don't uh, <laughs> and I don't either <laughs> no um, that's crazy to me like why there should at least be another one out there should have probably been a Halo six this past uh, holiday season or something you know the other, I mean uh, the other problem though even with something like Halo when that is their biggest franchise they. I, I've always said that Destiny should have been a Microsoft exclusive, and they just should have mm-hmm. let Bungie do whatever they wanted and do something new. And like Halo's good, and Halo will sell well. But like for me, three four three's Halo has kind of just forever been chasing Bungie's Halo. And even yeah. even if Halo Five did a pretty good job of imitating it, it's still just it's not really evolving as a series in any meaningful way. Like it at baseline, it's maybe holding on to some of the magic of the original, but. Yeah. You know, it's Halo 6, but there's been also Halo Reach and Halo ODST. So we're at, like, eight Halo games or something. <laughs> and it's, I, I don't know. I, I think that franchise and Gears both kind of need to to either be ended and something else can kind of take over, or they need to kind of go in a new direction and see where they can really take it. Well, some of the problem is going in a new direction. Like, Halo 5... Uh well the can I just really wasn't happy with the campaign. I mean it's a beautiful game and everything, but and it, it had fine multiplayer, but I really didn't like the fact that it was designed around co op. You know, and not even split screen, which would have been fine, but there you know, you play in the squad, even if you're playing by yourself and there's, you know, your your teammates fall and have to be revived and it's like, you know, like it's just not what I was looking for in a Halo game. I don't think a lot of people were really looking for that. Well, in this a Halo is Microsoft game, so. making big bets that like everyone wants everything to be multiplayer, whereas Sony is yeah. like through that, like we want everything to be awesome single player narrative experiences in, in, in contrast. And I think I mean, it's I think clear can... which one of those is winning out in, in terms of these exclusives. Right. And I think that partly Sony has a different built-in audience that's looking for those things and and i get that that xbox is kind of a different community but you know the original halo had was a single player experience that you could play in co-op if you wanted to and i just think that that's kind of a better way to i just think that in general that's a better way to go because yes i think that gamers now younger gamers especially are more likely to go online and play with friends than people who are playing you know who are older like me uh, but I think having the option is really important. Just in general, you know, if you're going to have a multiplayer component, at least let the single player be just as good without it. And yeah, so that that may be a problem with Sea of Thieves. Um, but you know, yeah, I think Microsoft needs to just continue making interesting games. I, they canceled Scalebound, they canceled Fable Legends, they've canceled a lot of stuff, and they just leaves them with so little exclusive content. I, I just I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do about it. You know, they had some good exclusives early on, like um, uh, 
Oh, I can't even think of the name. I guess it wasn't that good because I can't think of the name of it. But uh, it's been kind of a drought. All yep. my best games of last year were, I mean, a lot of them were Sony or, or Nintendo exclusives. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's, they've <laughs> got to get out of that pattern. But it, It's kind of like the Xbox One X launched, as good of a console as it is, it launched without any sort of video game fanfare. There was no the big game was like buy. Battlefront 2, <laughs> which right. obviously yeah. is multi-platform and was also a disaster at launch. So that was like kind of the ultimate <laughs> double backfire. But, I mean, originally, literally, the, the Xbox One X was supposed to launch with Crackdown 3. Right. And I just, I think they figured out it wasn't up to snuff and that was going to detract from the launch of anything. So, I mean, I, who knows when we'll, we'll end up seeing that, but... Well, how long has that game? That game's been in development for like six years or something. Yeah, it, at it, least four or five. Yeah, and it's been a long we time. still have kind of barely seen anything. Probably, I think I've seen maybe fifteen total minutes of footage in hmm. like five years or whatever it's been, and none yeah. of that has looked good. So that that's a series that continues to concern me. But I guess we'll see how it plays out. Well, what do you think? Are we going to see announcements for a new Halo like at E three this year? Is that going to be something we that maybe even comes out this year or? I don't what is your think it'll come out this year. Maybe. Um, I think we'll we'll hear Fable 4 announced for the far-flung future. Um, I mean, I, I do think we'll, we'll see a Halo announced. I don't know if it'll be out by fall or not. That may happen. That seems like that would be cutting it pretty close um, Yeah. with kind of the hype cycle. Uh, granted, that's kind of been what's happening with AAA lately is, is people waiting and waiting and waiting, but I haven't really heard any whispers about that at all, so... I mean, if if they can do it and they can launch it this this fall and it's awesome, like more power to them. Um, I think they're gonna have a tough time going up against Treyarch, Call of Duty, and probably Red Dead or whatever that comes out. But you know, and I think even Battle, was it Battlefields? I think they're gonna go Bad Company again. I don't know. We'll see. But you think they will? That's my theory. But that was also my theory last year. So <laughs> I was I was wrong. But. Um, yeah, so I, I think they'd have some pretty stacked competition, and we might be in another Gears of War situation where it just kind of gets overshadowed unless it's this kind of massive, awesome revelation. Um, yeah, but no I, pressure I do there. think Halo has <laughs> aged significantly. Even though Halo Five is is really fun multiplayer, I still think yeah. it's the whole series is is not in the healthiest of states right now. Yeah, they need to. I mean, they need a game where the campaign is really uh, outstanding. You know, they need a Titanfall 2 kind of campaign that really blows people's minds. Mm-hmm. You know, the last campaign, I just, oh, the, the bad guy was just terrible and it just was so tedious, I felt like. But uh, yeah, the multiplayer, the you know, big war and everything was really fun. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see. Uh, Microsoft can still surprise us. I think they have their their priorities are lining up in, in a positive way. There's just still a sort of a lack of content. Took five years, but we're getting there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it took five years. Yeah, maybe by the time the next one comes out, uh, well, they'll they'll understand what they need to do. Yeah. If there is a next one, we'll see. Xbox next. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. See ya. That's it for this episode of Overworld. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast one. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care.
Podcast One has new shows on our new app. Check out all the cool features to help you explore our exciting new programming, like America's Lakers Podcast with Jay Moore, So Random with Corinne Olympios, Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's Podcast, Not Just Sports with Susie Schuster and Rich Eisen, and Sessions with Randy Jackson, as well as your old favorites like The Lady Gang, Steve Austin, Shaquille O'Neal, and Adam Carolla. Get the new Podcast One app in the App Store, Google Play, or PodcastOne.com. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.